Heavenly Father, we're here this morning to declare your name. You are Lord of all. King of kings, Lord of all. We declare that this morning, Father God. You're on your throne, Father God. You have sent a revival to lands over the ages, Father God. And we declare that we readily seek you this morning. Father, we open our hearts to you now. Lord, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us. That you would reveal those things in our hearts this morning, Father God. We draw closer to you, Lord. We draw closer to you. Thank you, Jesus. We declare our love for you this morning, God. And all his people said, Amen. Hey, good morning, church. It is so lovely to just see half of your faces. I wish I could see all of them, but you're looking good nonetheless. Bearing in mind we have to keep our COVID restrictions in place, why don't you just yell across the room to each other for a little while and uh, say good day. And for those that are online, we welcome you. Thanks for joining us and worshipping with us this morning. Just a little heads up, we're going to enter into a time of communion a little bit later in this service, probably about five minutes away. So if you need to prepare for that, that would be awesome. Thank you. So welcome. How are we all doing? Excellent. I'm doing, too, I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. That's awesome. Yeah. So, um, cards. We all know about the Next Steps cards and uh, Connect cards. They're available via the online app, and uh, I'm sure you can see, check all that out on the website and fill them in. Uh, church Centre app, QR codes, we're all familiar with that sort of terminology now. Can you make sure that you check in, log in, etc.? Uh, our offering this morning, there is a, if you want to uh, make a direct debit, there's all that information up on the screen. We also have a collection box at the back and I'm sure we'll be working on taking cryptocurrency soon. Is that, is that right? Excellent. Apparently that's a millennial thing. Um, I'm tempted to investigate that one myself. So currently in church, church in person this morning, um, we have the capacity of having 300 people in, in the building, but we have to spread, as you can see. So we're up to 90 in here, 90 there, and others in the foyer. Now, all I'm asking, or we're asking uh, this morning, is that when we leave here after the service and you want your cup of coffee, that you could come back to the room that you are currently in and you can continue on your conversations. Uh, that way, we would really appreciate that. Uh, and with the current restrictions, you need to have your face masks on. The only... Um, caveat to that, of course, is if you're eating, drinking or have the microphone. So I intend to be doing one of all of those three throughout the service. Brad, you'll have to get another mic, I'm afraid. Um, we're going to enter into this uh, a time of communion. And, and just to let you all know, there's two stations in here. There's another station out there. And you will be served communion, okay? So we have to maintain that uh, degree of restriction. So communion. I was pondering a few things during the week, as, as you do, <clears throat> and I've come to the realisation that this is only a simple thought I have, and that's hopefully because I've not just run out of more complex things. 
But I think simplicity sometimes is what miss, is what's missing in in our lives. And this thought revolves around a phrase that says, "Hurry up and wait." And I'm not quite sure whether you're familiar with that, but being military, it's something that's thrown at us all the time. And it goes something like this, if you're not familiar. The powers that be tell you that you need to be here, there, you need all of this stuff, and it's generally in the dark. You've got to get there by six, and then you, you go, well, we're ready to go. Oh, no, uh, the bus doesn't leave till nine. And it's, oh, hurry up and wait. And for me, at least, it, it fosters this feeling of frustration. I get frustrated at the waiting. See, it's not the hurrying up that concerns me. It's the waiting. I hate maybe God's letting you know that you need to pray for patience for me or something. But, but I don't like this waiting. I mean, I was here at 8.30 to do this. Where were you? I was ready to go. I've had to wait. Okay? And, and I think... You maybe understand this yourselves when you're trying to get your kids to school and, or, or you want to go on a holiday and you've got to get to the airport and then you've got to sit and wait for two hours before the plane boards. And the frustration builds up to the point where you allow it to detract, distract or detract you from the actual journey, from the event that you're about to go on. And as I was pondering that, I thought, is that my relationship with God? Is that what my relationship with God's like? I'm happy to do the hurrying up, but wait? Sometimes I think we can go through a checkbox. I've done my Bible reading. I've done my prayer time. And now I've got to wait. I'm waiting. God, I'm waiting. Check my messages, my Facebook feed. God, I'm waiting. And, it's, and it can be a frustrating thing to wait on God. You only have to read the Bible for people that have waited for hundreds of years or plenty of time anyway for, for events to happen. And maybe we're using the wrong word. And I guess this is the crux of it. Maybe we should change wait to expect. We should have, because waiting is not passive. Waiting in this sense or this context is an expectancy. It's a doing thing. As we go into the communion side, the eating and the drinking, we have to accept that God has invited us to engage with him 24-7. Anytime we can come before him and put our petitions towards him, give him his praise and the honour and glory that he's due. We can do that. Should it be any different that God can inject himself into your time frame whenever he chooses? Should we limit God to speaking to us when we are ready to wait on him. You've got 15 minutes. I've now got to go to work. And he doesn't talk to you in that 15 minutes, so you're disappointed. And you get frustrated. Hurry up and wait. I think it's more about our heart wanting to expect that God will speak to us. 
Let's not confine him to his to our time frame. And so you might be in the garden, you might be washing the dishes, you might be eating your dinner, you might be sitting here right now, and God can go bang and talk to you. Outside of your time frame of expectancy, because he operates outside of that. So if you're anything like me and you get a little bit frustrated in waiting, pray for patience, I guess. But have the attitude that, no, 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 God will speak to me when he's ready to speak to me. And it could be any time. And I am expectant and I am ready to receive. That's my simple thought for communion this morning. So I will pray. The worship team will continue on. And if you could please come and avail yourself of the elements. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can have communion, common union with you. And you've, I don't know, God, so many things that you have done. So many things in my life, in our lives. And it's easy for us to just gloss over them. But Father, you paid a price a huge price for, her, for us to have this privilege. And we take the bread that is representative of your broken body and we drink this juice, again representative of your shed blood. And we don't do it lightly as we partake. This is our chance to again affirm you as Lord of our lives. And we do so with the utmost, the utmost integrity and honesty, sincerity in our hearts. Speak to us this morning as we partake, God. Amen. Oh God, we thank you for your grace. God, we thank you for your love, your never-ending kindness towards us. God, we thank you that you hold us and we can't hold ourselves together. God, you hold us when we think we've got life under control. And Lord, I pray this morning that we might know that embrace. We might know that presence in our life. God, that might cause us to trust you with every part of our life, with our Mondays and our Tuesdays. God, that we could walk out courage, with boldness, with faith in a way that we maybe wouldn't normally. God, just because we know your presence, because we know that you hold us, so we have nothing to fear. God, would you use this morning, would you use these moments to, to capture our hearts once again, to cause us to love you and follow you with every part of our life pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, please grab a seat. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, those online. Great to have you. I don't know which camera I'm looking at, but all the cameras. Good morning, those in the hall. Actually, let's go across. I've got, we've got people in the hall. Yeah, okay. See ya. <laughs> this is where everyone who's like selfless and 
you've given up the good seats in the auditorium. To, so I'm going to start in here this morning. Is that all right? Can you hear me in the auditorium? Yeah. Can you see me? Oh, look at the tech team. Can you give the tech team a hand like that? I just said that's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm just going to walk in here. No, they're, they're good, aren't they? We're in week four of um, Esther. So we're in chapters seven and eight. Have you been following along on the reading plan? You've been reading Esther? Everyone say yes. Yes, it's like when you got asked to do your homework at school. Yes, yes, of course we did that. Of course you did. And, and so we've been traveling through Esther. We've done um, the first six chapters. We'll do seven and eight this morning and next week. Tom is going to bring it home. Um, isn't that right, Tom? Uh, with chapters nine and ten. And so we've been talking about this idea that God's at work even when we can't see it. That we don't always see God at work. And in fact, in Esther, you never see God's name mentioned. You never, um, you never see Yahweh. You never see anything apart from um, the only mention of sort of, sort of God in, in, indirectly is that Mordecai was a Jew or Esther was a Jew. And that's sort of, that's it. But we see the hand of God through Esther. And in fact, as I was reading through chapters 7 and 8 multiple times this week, I just couldn't um, help but see the gospel just like so clearly laid out time and again. And this morning I'm going to share some of that with you. Um, it's just so, so cool how God is uh, interwoven into the, into the story. And he's interwoven into your story as well, even when you don't know he is. God isn't mentioned, but God is present. And when God doesn't seem like he's getting a mention in your story, he's there. In the second week we talked about being ready as we are, that we're born for such a time as this. There's a famous verse in Esther 4.14, um, who knows, maybe you're born for such a time as this, and that, um, that Mordecai and Esther both acted out of who they were, that they, their faith came because they were Jews, because they were followers of God, um, they acted in a certain way, and that who we are determines what we do, not the other way around. We can't act ourselves into a follower of Jesus, it's who God makes us. Because we are sons and daughters, we act like sons and daughters. Just like you can't become a dog just because you start barking. doesn't matter how much you bark, it's, you're not going to be a dog. But when you, I suppose when you are a dog, if you think like that, I don't know how dogs think, but um, they think, oh, I'm a dog, I should bark. And then we say, don't bark, you're a dog. Anyway, if you've got dogs, you know. Uh, and then last week we talked about temptation and turns and um, how Esther was tempted with the kingdom. And even in this this week's um, chapters, in chapter 7, she's tempted again with the kingdom. Um, but it doesn't come across like a temptation at all to Esther. When you read through the story, you sort of get this impression that Esther wasn't even tempted. It was like, oh, I don't want that. This is what I want. And we talked about when we're determined or when we um, have a heart after God and the things of God, the things that might have been tempting in the past won't be as tempting because we'll be so focused on what God has for us and what God wants for us. And when we live on purpose, it helps us. And so this week, we're going to look at chapter 7 and 8. And let me read some of chapter 7. I'm going to read from verse 5 to 10. 5 to 10. It says this, King Azarias spoke up and asked Queen Esther, Who is this? And where is the one who would devise such a scheme? And Esther answered, The adversary and the enemy is this evil Haman. Not this Haman, just H-A-M-A-N. Not, no why. Haman, this evil Haman. Haman stood terrified before the king and the queen, and the king arose in anger and went from there 
where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized that the king was planning something terrible for him. He's a smart fellow, this Haman. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I'm in the house? And as soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. It's like a movie scene, isn't it? It's like, oh, take him away. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, there is a gallows 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved the king. And the king said, hang him on it. And they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king's anger subsided. Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we thank you that it is alive, it is active, it's able to speak to our hearts, it's able to challenge us, change us, make us more like you. And God, we pray this morning it would do that, that you would um, use your word, use, use my voice, use your spirit to, to change us from the inside out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, I'm going to go back to my pulpit because I've, I've only got that much notes here. I can make the rest up. It's a long walk. All right. So Harry started um, Kick on Friday night for the first time. We've been talking about... He talks about footy non-stop. Um, and good on him. He goes for the Cats. The Cats are best team in the comp at the moment. Gary Rowan kicking that goal after the siren. Who watched that on Friday night? Scott, I know you did. I was there. I tried to get the boys to stay up and watch it, and they fell asleep. Ten minutes into the first quarter, both of them. Anyway, and then, yeah, Harry wakes up, and he... So, this is not part of my illustration, but I've got to tell you this, because it's funny. He... Um, he, he knows how to use KO on the iPad, so he knows how to watch the replay. And so whenever he gets up in the morning and the game's been on the night before, he'll watch the Cats and he'll just scrub forward to the end and go, the Cats won. I said, well, it's not much fun just to watch the last like. Anyway, he just cares who wins. Um, he likes watching it too, but it's a long game for a five-year-old. Um, but anyway, he started odds kick on Friday night and it's... it's it's great watching five-year-olds try to play footy. Um, it really is, and they have a game. And I mean, it's just they swarm the ball, right? Everyone just like it doesn't matter what team you're on. It's just like I don't care if you're on my team. I want the ball um, from you, however I get it. If you pass it to me, that's a bonus. But I'll probably just snatch it off you. Um, and so, and there's no tackling in Ozpic. It's not supposed to be any tackling. Um, and so they just get the ball however they want. Uh, and it doesn't seem to matter which team they're on. Um, it's just get the ball. And then uh, it took Harry a, f a little while to figure out which way he was supposed to go uh, as well. He didn't know whose team he was on or which way to go. Uh, it just looks so obvious on the TV when you watch the footy. It's like, oh, obviously they're going that way and they're going that way. But when you're on the ground, it's like, I don't know. Who's on my team? What are we supposed to do? I just got the ball. I'm just going to kick it. Um, and it doesn't really matter um, because they're not... Don't tell Harry, he's probably tuned out by now, but they're not, they're not scoring. It doesn't matter who wins. Uh, obviously, in real footy, it does matter. Um, just some people, some, some of you, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who's playing. It never matters what the score is or who's winning. It doesn't matter uh, until it does matter. Um, 
And I think in our life, um, we need to know not on only whose team we're on, but we need to know which way we're going and, and it matters um, who the opposition is. If we don't know who the opposition is and we don't know which way we're going, we can easily become lost. We can easily become um, to a point where the other team is somehow winning uh, and then life isn't going like it should. And I love in this part of Esther that Esther is so clearly identifying who the enemy is. And she's got such a strong strategy in defeating the enemy and working for the good of her people, for the good of God's people, to overcome the enemy. Um, And I think through this couple of chapters, we're going to see not only the enemy identified, but the enemy defeated and God's people um, rise up in, in victory. And it's, it's an amazing part of the story. I mean, the whole thing's amazing, but these two chapters are just like, you see the first five chapters of Esther and it's not looking good. There's nothing good happening in the story for the Jews and for God's people. And then all of a sudden in chapters six, seven, and eight, and through nine and 10, you just see God's hand just like come like a tidal wave and just like sweep up all these people and save them. That's a beautiful thing. And so um, we're going to step through these two chapters Um, as best we can and see how God does this and how he um, mirrors this in the gospel in our own lives. So verse 5 and 6, we just read this. Uh, The king spoke up and asked Queen Esther, who is this? Where is the one who would devise such a a scheme? So remember, the queen's just gone for king and said, this terrible thing's happened, there's an enemy, Uh, he's trying to kill all the Jews, He's, he's basically tricked you into writing this edict and he said, who is this enemy? And then she was very smart to have the king and Haman there to maximise the impact of this moment. And she points to Haman and says, that is the enemy. That is the enemy. The adversary and the enemy is this evil Haman. And you can imagine Haman just standing there, just like, like caught red-handed, like, I did not expect this. I was bragging to all my friends that I'd been invited to the banquet for the king and the queen and like how good this moment was going to be. And then all of a sudden, he's just been tricked into this moment. And so there was a really clear strategy on Esther's behalf to, to set up this moment for maximum impact. She could have done it in a number of ways, but she chose to do it this way. And I think it was very smart on her, on her behalf to get the king and Haman in the same room and reveal the intent of Haman. And it seems to be, most commentaries would say this, that it was at this moment that Esther revealed her true identity as a Jew, that she waited until this moment to reveal even to the king that she was a Jew. And so you could imagine the impact of that moment, that the king finds out that the Jews are about to be killed and Haman was the one who set it up and Esther is a Jew, so Haman has been trying to kill my wife and Haman probably didn't know at this point that Esther was a Jew either. And so you can imagine just all these things colliding in the same moment, uh, what sort of impact they would have. And I guess the, the point for us to take out of this is that there's a strategy that we need in life, that we need to be intentional in the way that we live. Esther was very intentional in the way that she lived and the, and the steps that she took. She found out what was happening, she found out what the, the way forward was and then she put some clear steps into action to work through the adversary, to work through the hard path to put a plan into action and to walk out her faith. 
And so my question to you this morning is, do you have things that you do intentionally to walk towards God and to squash the lies of the enemy in your own life? Or do you just take each day as it comes and just hope that it, it works out all right? I think there's some benefit in having some clear strategies. And the other question is, do you know who the enemy is? Do you know who the enemy is? Because I think it's so important for us as Christians to identify the enemy and to know our plan against him. And I don't have time to go into this, but Ephesians 6 is a clear um, description of the enemy and a clear way forward out of a strategy for you. And I'm just going to read a little bit of it. Ephesians 6, 10 to 12, a final word. Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And so Paul writes to the Ephesians to, to think about these things like the truth and the righteousness and the good news, salvation and faith, the word of God, and use these as strategies against the enemy. And to know that the enemy is not the people that you see. It's not the person sitting next to you. Don't look at them. It's the evil powers in the unseen world. He has a strategy against your life, against God's people. And so we need to have a strategy to, to stand up against what he might throw at us because he will throw things at us, things that we expect and things that we don't expect. And it's, it's important that we know the enemy and that we know our plan against him. And so... Esther does this, she reveals to the king, this is Haman, he's, he's the bad guy. And uh, remember back in chapter 5 that um, Haman had built a gallows at his house? It's like a big, some would say a big stake that um, you sort of get impaled on or a big um, structure that you hang someone from. Not, not super clear, but... Uh, his wife, Zeresh, in Esther 5.14, and his friends told him, have him build a gallows, 75 feet tall, and ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it and go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows construction constructed. Two chapters later, they hanged Haman on the gallows he prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. You know, I love this moment of the story. It's like the gospel is just wrapped up in this verse. That there was a death that you and I were meant to face, but there was someone else who took our place. There was a wrath that the king had towards, towards the evil, plotting person, enemy. And for us in our sin, that wrath was directed at us, but then Jesus takes our sin and says, oh, listen to what Haman does. Haman doesn't take Esther's, he's not the good guy, but he, he represents sin in this moment and is killed on the very thing that he was setting up to destroy Mordecai and the Jews with. The very thing that the enemy tries to defeat us with, with sin, Jesus defeats. Jesus takes our place on the cross. In Romans 5 verse 9, it says, And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. It was the sin, it was the evil that made the king angry, and only death would satisfy that wrath. 
And the truth is that our sin and our king can't coexist. There is something needed to, to satisfy that wrath, and that something was Jesus, fulfilled on the cross. The cross meant for death, but ultimately used for our life, ultimately used to secure life for us. Death was defeated on the cross. In the moment of death, death was defeated once and for all. Haman is killed on this gallows and then it's just good news in chapter 8. Good news after good news. In Esther 8, we see that um, verse 1 and 2, the king awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman. Um, king, in verse 2, the king removed his ring and recovered he recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai and, um, and Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate. So Haman is spending his whole life accumulating wealth. Remember back a couple of chapters, he's bragging to people about how rich he is, how good he's got it, um, but still Mordecai's ruining his life because he doesn't like him. But he's got everything in life. He's got all the money, all the stuff. And then at the end of Haman's life, the king says, well, I'm just going to take it all. None of that's even going to your family. And Mordecai and Esther, you get it all. You get the entire estate. You get the ring of authority. You get it all. Haman spent his life accumulating wealth and fame, and at the end, he had nothing. Nothing even for his family. It's like his ladder was leaning against the wrong wall or the wrong building. And he spent his whole life climbing this ladder, only to realize at the top, there's nothing here. It wasn't worth it. You know, and our legacy in our life is not our wealth. It's not our fame. It's not our success. At the end of the day, those things can't be passed on through eternity. But our faith can. Our faith can. And we're a church that believes the first-generation disciples. And by first-generation disciples, I mean those that are saved that have no faith legacy of their own. Because we know that people are more likely to grow and walk in their faith in God when their parents have, when their faith has been passed down from generation to generation. There is nothing more important than seeing people take their walk with God seriously and pass it on to generations to come. Your faith um, or your legacy as a, as a parent, as a grandparent, as an aunt or as an uncle is your faith. That is the thing in a thousand years' time that you're going to say, I'm glad I passed that on. The house, the car, the other things that you might dream or have, at the end of the day, mean nothing. They'll fade away. Our ladder isn't supposed to be up against the building of success and wealth, but it should be up against the kingdom of God. Because that can never be taken away. Esther and Mordecai get the, get the triumph, get the keys to the estate. They get the authority. Um, the king gives Mordecai the ability to use the king's name. Make an edict. You know, you've got this, this moment coming up where all the Jews are going to be wiped out. So you can just, I can't revoke that, but you can make a, a new law to, to do whatever you need to do to save the Jews. And so the, Mordecai has the ability to use the, the king's name. In verse 7 and 8 of chapter 8, it says, King 
Azarias said to Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, look, I have given Haman's estate to Esther and he was hanged on the gallows because he attacked the Jews. Write in the king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews and seal it with the royal signet ring. A document written in the king's name and sealed with the royal signet ring cannot be revoked. Mordecai has the authority to, to change the outcome of what's about to happen. And God gives us his authority to change outcomes in our own life and those around us. God has given us his authority through Jesus so that when we pray and when we ask and use the name of Jesus, it carries weight, it carries authority. It's not just a good wish, it's not just a good hope, but it carries the authority of the, the King of Kings, the creator of the universe. In John 14, verse 13 and 14, it says, Jesus says, you can ask anything in my name, and I will do it, so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me anything in my name, and I'll do it. Don't just hope for a better tomorrow. Pray for it. Don't just wish someone has a better tomorrow, but pray for them, that they would. Believe that the authority that you have in Jesus' name actually is authoritative and carries weight. It's not just good luck, but it's authority in the name of Jesus. It's a big difference. So Esther and Mordecai get the triumph, they get the authority. And then, I love this bit in, chapter, in verse 9 of chapter 8, how it's good news for everyone at the same time. So it says, on the 23rd day of the third month, that is the month of Sivan, the royal scribes were summoned and everything was written exactly as Mordecai commanded for the Jews, to the satraps, to the governors and to the officials of the provinces from India to Kush. The edict was written for each province in its own script, for each ethnic group in its own language, to the Jews in their own script and language. Esther just keeps reading, like the book of Esther, they just reinforce things all the time. So every language, every ethnic group, every language, every ethnic group. The edict was translated so all could understand it, so all could hear the good news. It wasn't just written in one language and then just hope that, well, they'll figure it out. It was written in every language, to every ethnic group. It was good news for all God's people, for all people, even outside of God's people. Um, it, it, further on in, um, at the end, it's, it talks about the there was many ethnic groups that weren't Jews, but they pretended that they were Jews. Or actually, it says that they began to identify as Jews so that they were saved as well. You know, we believe that this church is a home for all. For all. Every person. No matter their background, no matter their language, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their anything. Home for all. The good news is good news for all people. The gospel is accessible to all people, not just those that are smart enough to repeat it the way that we repeat it or use the right Christianese words. The good news is good news for all people. And we believe that we are called to be a church that is home for all, that shows people the narrow gate, the way to life. It doesn't make them jump a fence to get onto the narrow path. It shows them the way, home for all. This is for anyone. Here it is. This is the way, home for all. 
the good news is good news. And sometimes we can overthink it and overdo our explanation of it. And Jesus was the master of making the good news accessible to all people. He was the master at changing his language. To those that were fishermen, he talked about fish and nets and boats. To those that were farmers, he talked of things of agriculture and and sheep and, and farming. To those that were rich, he talked about taxes and money and and things that they would make sense for them. I think sometimes in our Western educated culture, we can say, well, if someone doesn't understand it this way and use these words in this order, then they don't really get it and they might not be saved. But being saved is not about using the right words in the right order, it's having the right heart after Jesus. It's about following him and surrendering your life to him. It's good news for all. So the edict that Mordecai had written in the king's name, in verse 11, it says, gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, kill and annihilate every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them, including women and children to take their positions as spoils of war. So without this edict, without this law, the Jews had no hope. They had no hope to stand. They had no hope to defend themselves against the attack that was imminent. And without the power of the king behind them, they had nothing They had no hope of standing up against any attack. And without the king behind us, without Jesus behind us, we have no hope of standing up against anything that is thrown against us. But because we do, because we have the king behind us, because we have the king who loves us, we have the ability to stand and fight against anything that the enemy might throw at us. It goes back to Ephesians 6. We have the ability to use the armour that he's given us, the strategies he's used us to defeat the enemy that is against us. I just want to, I'm going to skip some bits because I want to get to this bit. The end of Esther 8 talks about this celebration. So this, this is what happens. The Mordecai writes the law, the law's passed, it goes out, they quickly send it out on horses, like, quick, go tell everyone before the day comes that they're going to get attacked, and then they get the good news and they throw a party. They start celebrating before the day's even come. Before the war or the battle's even finished, they're, they're celebrating everywhere. It says this in verse 15, Mordecai went from the king's presence clothed in royal blue and white with great gold crown and purple robe of fine linen. The king of Zuza shouted and rejoiced, and the Jews celebrated with gladness, joy, and honour in every province and in every city where the king's command and edict reached, gladness and joy took place among the Jews. And there was celebration and a holiday. We love to throw a holiday whenever there's something like a grand final. I suppose similar. Um, And many ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to, to be Jews because of the fears the Jews had overcome them. So they haven't even had the big day yet, but they were throwing parties left, right and center. They were beginning to celebrate. The good news had reached their hearts and was overflowing into their mouths. Even so much celebration that those who weren't Jews said that they were. And their celebration was contagious. Their faith was contagious. This is the moment of faith because the the battle, the, the day had not even come yet, but they were celebrating like they'd already won. It was so obvious that other people saw it and desired it for themselves. They had this faith, this had this understanding that no one, nothing can stand against Yahweh. Nothing can stand against the Lord. Against God's people, there is no hope. They knew this. 
Even, remember, Haman's wife knew this, Zeresh. Chapter 6, verse 13, Haman told his wife Zeresh and his friends that everything that had happened in his advisors, his advisors and his wife said to him, since Mordecai is Jewish, your downfall is certain, you won't overcome him. There's no hope for you. When God says something, when God moves, he moves. There's no chance of stopping him. When God says something is going to happen, it will happen. It will happen. No one can stand against someone who is standing with Yahweh. There is reason to celebrate. Even in the midst of uncertain tomorrow, there is reason to celebrate. Because God has secured our future. God has secured your future, your eternity. And when that good news captures our hearts, it should change everything in our life. It should overflow into joyous shouts, into singing, into feeling good about our future with God. There is so much in chapter 7 and 8, and I pray that as you read it this week, that God might remind you of his love for you. He might remind you of the good news of Jesus. He might remind you that you have the keys to the kingdom, that you have authority in his name, that it's good news for all people, that you have the ability to stand and fight, that God has given you the strategies, and that you can celebrate even before it's all over, because victory is certain. The gospel is good news. The gospel is always good news, even when God's name doesn't get a mention. God might, be not, might not be mentioned in your story much, but he is at work and he has good news for you and for all those around you. I pray that this week you might know that he loves you and that he has given you all that you need to stand up against any attack that might come your way. And as you stand, you'll be filled with this faith, with joy, with celebration in the midst of uncertainty. And that that might be contagious to those around you. That others might see your faith and want it for themselves. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for, for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that you have secured life for us, victory for us. God, that we can trust you with every part of our life. God, we can trust you and be certain of victory even when we can't see tomorrow. God, you hold our future. You hold every part of our life. And God, we pray that you might give us that eternal perspective and it might fill us with joy and celebration in such a contagious way that others might want it, that others would desire it. God, we thank you for this church. We thank you that we are a home for all, that the good news is good news for every person. Help us to be carriers of that good news. We love you, we honour you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.